This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of raising the educational standard for children with disabilities by saying that a child's educational program must be appropriately ambitious in light of his circumstances and that every child should have the chance to meet challenging objectives. The rationale behind this ruling was the unbundling of the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, which is also called IDEA, as well as the impact of autism on special education. In this part of today's show, we're going to be having a thoughtful, thought-provoking conversation with one of the thought leaders in the subject of special education. And he's going to be telling us about one of the strange conundrums that he's dealing with as, as somebody who's involved in this all the time. And that is that although special education is based on the concept of access, the idea that public schools are open to all children, access itself is no longer enough. Approaches that lead to academic success are increasingly demanded for those with learning disabilities, although functional, independent living and employable skills are necessary. They're also rare for those with serious handicap conditions. We'll start talking about special education and in particular how autism is reshaping special education when positive parenting continues right after this. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio, take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Mark Claypool, who's the co-author of How Autism is Reshaping Special Education, The Unbundling of Idea. Mark, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start off a little bit with you defining for us, if you would, what special education is. Well, that's a great question. And uh, that is, uh, I think, the crux of the matter is defining that. If we really define it from the uh, kind of legal uh, status, which is uh, unfortunately I think how it's been pigeonholed and how most parents are um, really exposed to special education. Uh, special education in our public schools is something that has been part of uh, the public school system uh, for a very long time. It was uh, began to be codified and kind of formalized in the late 1960s culminating in the passage of uh, the law, which led to what we now call IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which was signed by President Gerald Ford in uh, 1974, I believe. So uh, that basically uh, was a law written around civil rights law 
uh, patterned after Brown versus Board of Education and other prominent uh, civil rights cases. And the purpose of the law originally was simply to ensure that children who were disabled had free and uh, appropriate access to school, that they could come to school. Uh, in the past, uh, many public school districts would simply say, I'm sorry, your child's problems are too complex or mm -hmm. we don't have we don't have this expertise. You simply cannot come to school. And so the law did strike that down. It was a great leap forward in that regard. Uh, and uh, I think everyone heralded it at the time as, uh, as a very progressive step toward really uh, providing great services for kids. Well, it sounds um, like it. It sounds, I mean, I think anybody who is my age anyway can think back and you, and you, you ask yourself the question, you, there, there's so many autistic kids who are around in schools these days, uh, where were they? When, right. when I was growing up, and, and I think this, the sad answer is that they were institutionalized, a lot of them. So the, the idea right. of, a lot of them the idea of, uh, you know, I guess it's called mainstreaming, you know, bringing these kids into regular classrooms is, is a wonderful one. It is, uh, but, but really the, the unfortunate twist, I think, uh, happened in 1982 when, um, well, let me back up for a moment, the law, uh, as it was written, uh, even President Ford, when he signed it, said this is a great idea, but I don't know how we're going to pay for it. And uh, there was a guarantee uh, in the law that 40% of the funding would come from the federal government. The most that has ever been appropriated for special education is about 17%. So it is largely an unfunded mandate. And as a result, you know, shortly after it was enacted, several uh, court cases came up where uh, parents still felt like they were being denied appropriate service. And so the Supreme Court in 1982 issued uh, a ruling which is referred to as the Rowley ruling, which just basically said, and I'm paraphrasing terribly, I'm sure, but just basically said that the public school districts are not responsible for maximizing the potential of a child. They're simply responsible under the law for providing access and a minimum floor of service. And, mm. you know, that was a real blow that uh, uh, I think set the tone, a negative tone, unfortunately, for special education and pushed special ed into a very compliance-oriented mode where uh, it is then, it, it was then and continues uh, until now uh, to be, you know, frankly, from a financial perspective, any public school district's best interest to delay services as long as they can, to, uh, to avoid providing services and avoid providing diagnostics because it's just seen as a huge financial burden. And, uh, and that, you know, that kind of rocked along that way for many years uh, until autism really hit the scene in a big way, and that has been a huge game changer, and that's really what the, the, the book is about. It's, it's really how autism runs into that dynamic I've just described, that sort of compliance mentality, uh, because uh, autism is not like a lot of other conditions that are considered disabilities uh, under the law. It is not a static disability. It's very malleable. Uh, if you provide intensive services, at a very young age, you can make a dramatic impact in the quality of life and the level of independence that an individual can have later. Um, so, you know, if you're a parent uh, who suspects um, your well, child has me, autism, go ahead. Mark, let me just go back a little bit. You talked about the, the 
changing nature of autism or the the, the ability to provide services, uh, intensive service in the beginning and have changes later on. Would, couldn't you say the same thing about a lot of other learning disabilities, is that a lot of dyslexic kids are able to come up with s ways to work with that or that they're able to, through intensive work, overcome some of the other learning disabilities? Uh, I absolutely, I, I do, and I think that that is, um, that is what is going to evolve because of autism and all of the dramatic change that autism has already brought to the practice of special education. I think there are many people waiting in the wings, including uh, the largest group of students and parents, which are children who have dyslexia. Uh, autism, for all of the, uh, the news about it, is still only the fourth or fifth most uh, prevalent disability um, in special education. Uh, children with learning disabilities, particularly dyslexia, just uh, totally uh, have an, uh, an overwhelming number of mm -hmm. students that, that yeah. have that as opposed to autism. Okay. So All when right. you look at the law, kind of coming back to your question, though, if you look at the, the original purpose of the law back in the late 60s and 70s, the, the children that people had in mind, uh, that lawmakers had in mind, were really blind and deaf children and children uh, who had Down syndrome or some pervasive developmental problem. It's really more, in their mind anyway, more static disabilities rather than this very fluid, treatable sort of, uh, of issue. Well, isn't that partly because the the treatment mm -hmm. options for autism have changed? I think you know, again, in, in the beginning, years ago, I can't. You, you're much more in, in tune with exactly what's happened. But just say years ago, it was looked at as one thing, and then over time, it's become the spectrum. And there, well, in, before that, there was Aspergers, and there was you know, different different levels of autism. Uh, and I, I think that. The idea of intensive treatment is a more relatively new one, wouldn't you say? Well, I don't think it's a new idea because it's really, uh, at its core, the, the, the intervention that is sort of the gold standard is, uh, is an old intervention. It's applied behavioral analysis, which has been around since B.F. Skinner. And, you know, Ivan Lavas at UCLA uh, really pioneered and, and, uh, and, and embraced its use for children with autism in the 60s and in 70s, and uh, so the, the idea has been around a long time. I think the, what we're seeing is the convergence of a tremendous amount of advocacy, uh, you know, that kind of converged with the, the rise of social media, particularly Facebook, uh, when, uh, particularly when Bob and Suzanne Wright uh, founded uh, Autism Speaks, and uh, I think the, the autism community has just had a benefit of an incredible amount of advocacy and publicity that other disability categories didn't have. Um, and with that came a lot of treatment options, really driven more by funding options. Uh, so uh, these parents who, you know, frankly were growing weary of the process that you have to go through in, in public education uh, that can take uh, nine months to a year to get a diagnosis and get a treatment plan set up. Um, you know, parents just got tired of that and they wanted control of that situation. And so through Autism Speaks, and a lot of lobbying, uh, they, they really crafted uh, a scenario where autism is seen as a medical issue, not an educational issue, and therefore should be funded by health insurance. And so 38 states now have uh, a mandate in state law that private insurance in those states has to cover uh, intensive uh, preschool autism treatments. Um, so it is a, it is a changing uh, phenomenon. Have the, have, the, 
Have the interventions really changed much? No, not the reputable ones, but but the acknowledgement, I think, that that the intensity is worth it. Um, and the intensity uh, is very difficult to achieve uh, through the traditional special ed system, which is just not set up for intensive remediation or intensive intervention. It's really set up for maintenance. Talking with Mark Claypool, who's the co-author with John McLaughlin of How Autism is Reshaping Special Education, the Unbundling of IDEA. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Mark about autism and special education and a lot more. I'm Armin Braun. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Mark Claypool, the co-author of How Autism is Reshaping Special Education, the Unbundling of IDEA. Uh, Mark, let's let's get into some of the specifics about how things are changing and what it is that parents need to be aware of if they have a, a child with autism who has been in the system a little bit, if anything new has changed for them, and maybe somebody who has a child who is five years old and is just about to start school or just starting school. Okay. Well, you know, I would say a lot of things have changed and are changing very rapidly. Um, again, I mentioned uh, earlier that the, uh, the, the idea that autism should be treated as a health care issue is a very big thing, and this is something that has really, really been growing uh, as a phenomenon for about five years or so. Um, and, uh, and, you know, to one, one parent that I, I asked about this who was very involved in the movement said, you know, look, a school superintendent didn't diagnose my kid. Why would this be an educational issue? This is this is clearly a healthcare issue. So I think that is a big deal, and that means that parents do have more rights. They have more control of of uh, demanding and getting uh, treatment. And but I think that also means parents are going to have to be much more sophisticated in knowing their rights and in knowing the various uh, different kinds of funding streams that are that they are eligible to receive. And they have to be their own case manager, have to be their own advocate to bring these services together because there are some things that the public school systems do great. There are some things they simply cannot do, right. and uh, and vice versa. That goes with the, the, the health care sector as well. So I think that's a really big deal. The other – I think the second really, really big change uh, I mentioned uh, in the first segment about the, the 1982 Rowley decision, which really put a floor, uh, so to speak, on special ed. It did not – say that kids have to get better or kids have to be uh, receive treatment. They just have to receive sort of maintenance. Well, the, the Supreme Court just a few months ago kind of reversed that in a very subtle way. And, and uh, in the Andrew F. case, which was about a child from Colorado with autism, and uh, in, in his summary, Judge Roberts uh, said that uh, in his opinion and in the opinion of the court, the public school districts are responsible for providing a program of services that is as ambitious as the child's potential for independence. So this is a real reversal 
of uh, of the court's position. We haven't seen it manifested yet in policy, but it will be. It will be very quickly, and so yeah. parents are going to be able, uh, because of this ruling, to say, you know, uh, it's just not enough that he, my child, is is here every day. I want to I want to see my child get better. I want to make sure that they're they're getting better, and. I think that's going to be great for kids, great for parents. I think that that's also going to be good for public school systems because to to really effectively deal with this, we need to bring every resource we can to bear for these kids in a very intensive way because that's what works. Right. And uh, we don't need to be fighting over you know who's in charge or or who who controls the money. Uh, and I think the the, 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 this is a change that's growing in momentum, and I, I think it's it's going to be great for kids. Well, but what about people who might not have insurance, who are stuck in one of these areas where they're being told that it's a medical issue? Well, um, right now let me clarify and say that it's a medical issue, but under the law, the school districts can't just say, we're not helping you because that's a medical issue. They have to serve the child. But I think when, when a state has an insurance mandate, it ups the ante and, and, and puts more emphasis on... Um, on really on treatment and outcomes. Now, private insurance is one thing, but uh, Medicaid now covers these services for for more children than private insurance does, certainly, uh, and that is universal across the board in every state. Right, but are uh, the, are the services that are being provided the same? It's just a question of who's paying for it? No. Uh, the services that should be provided by a public school are, are going to be more educational. They're going to be certainly confined to the length of the school day, typically, uh, the services that can be provided and funded through healthcare means are going to be more therapeutic and clinical, um, and uh, and need to be applied in an intensive way, which may mean 20 to 30 hours a week. So clearly, that's not going to work during the school day. So this is this provides longer care, more resources for parents to receive services in home or in a clinic setting outside of school or even in school. Um, and I think that's where it's going to be interesting to watch that unfold is how the uh, the different entities work together. Now, do you think there's going to be a, a push to maybe move things like uh, ADD or OCD or some other things that have been probably looked at generally under the heading of, of educational stuff under IDEA, that they're also going to get pushed off into the medical side? I, I suspect strongly they will, particularly dyslexia. Which again, uh, if you're going to use the argument that uh, that autism speaks is used, that this is a medical issue because it's diagnosed by a doctor, you know that does kind of open the door to a lot of other things. And dyslexia is clearly uh, more than just a, an educational issue; it's an issue that requires some intensive work, particularly early on. And there's also, like uh, like autism, there is a a, a well-known standard. Uh, intervention that works very well for children with dyslexia, and uh, and it's really just a question of of getting the right intensity. Which, again, school districts are just not set up to do it because they're focused on six and a half, seven hours of school a day. They've got a thousand other things to do, and funding is really constrained um, in a formulaic sort of way. Whereas, um, as healthcare, it's basically medical necessity and and you should receive the number of hours that you need from your your provider, so a healthcare provider. So these are uh, these are two things kind of coming together. Again, yeah. it's going to be really interesting to see how they mesh. Doesn't this put a lot more pressure on parents, though? I mean, when everything was being handled at the school, they'd get the evaluation at the school, they'd get the the uh, treatment plan or the education plan. 
uh, it's all handled there. But now if it's you got to get some of your stuff at the through the doctor, you got to get some of the stuff at school, it's going to be one of these things where the parents are going to be running around all over the place having to spend a huge amount more time and that that everybody is pointing fingers at the other guy and saying, well, it's their it's their job to handle this. Well, you know, frankly, I think parents, uh, and I'm not speaking uh, here in a, in a way that, that uh, to impugn anyone or impugn public education. And, you know, I would say uh, another qualifying thing before I say what I'm going to say is that there is one federal law that governs special ed, but it is interpreted 50 different ways. And there are a few states that are do, do a wonderful job of advocacy, California, Massachusetts, New York. But there are a lot of states where parents already have to simply spend an inordinate amount of time and their own money uh, employing lawyers and litigating just to get basic services from a public school system. Um, and that's hard to imagine for people who live in states that, that really take this very seriously. But um, it is a radically different experience for the vast majority of parents and children in public school. And so I don't think that this is necessarily any more complicated uh, than it already is for most parents. Okay. Well, that's uh, will come as a comfort for many, I'm sure. Uh, so w- talk about IDEA and the unbundling part of it. How does that work? Well, you know, IDEA, again, is the, is the federal law that, uh, that guarantees access and equity for children with disabilities. But it has been kind of, uh, uh, I think, turned into something that it was never intended. At least the, the, the underpinning law, again, is civil rights law. It was not intended to be a law guaranteeing treatment or, or improving uh, the outlook of, uh, of children as, a, uh, as independent adults, ultimately. So um, it's a law that's old. It's a law that's in need, badly in need of revision, but the world has kind of left it in the dust. And, and I think because of all of this shift from uh, in autism into health care uh, and some things away from education, I think we're going to see uh, the elimination ultimately of this idea that is sort of one-stop shopping. That, you know, you show up at the door of the public school and they're responsible for everything. It's not fair to the public school systems. It's really not fair to the kids. It's not fair to the parents. It doesn't work. We have to have, a, I think, a, a rational approach that, manages uh, all the different people and stakeholders and uh, the people that can improve this child's life and coordinate that more effectively. In my mind, that's what unbundling is. I think that we've seen special education as, you know, here, here's Johnny, you know, he's, a, he's at the front door of the school district. I can walk away, and they've got to do whatever for him, and that's just not working. So I think we're going to see that responsibility kind of change and be better defined and uh, – and I think we'll see more parties at the table as a result. Sounds like that's going to be a good thing. I think so. I think it can be a very, very positive thing for kids. It's going to be scary to a lot of people. It's going to be very scary. Uh, yeah. To you know, I think sometimes public education is a very reflexive uh, response to change, which is negative. Uh, but as long as everybody is focused on the child first, uh, I, I think this can be a very good thing. Mark Claypool is the co-author with John McLaughlin of How Autism is Reshaping Special Education, the Unbundling of IDEA. Mark, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes, and you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio, you're busy. 
Which is great, because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. <laughs> they can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test, because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Kids have tons of energy. That's just one of the many things we love about them, right? Sometimes, though, as we all know, they don't have enough outlets for that energy. As a result, they can do things that we don't really love quite so much. But properly channeled, those idle hands can play, do, create, build, investigate, and get involved in all sorts of wonderful, productive things. Here are some of our favorites. Dr. Panda plus home designer from Dr. Panda. Perfect for kids who love to draw and design, Dr. Panda combines a physical toy with an easy-to-use AR technology to bring your child's creations to life. Use more than 50 flashcards to place generic items like furniture, clothes, art, plants, and more into whichever room you want to design. Or flip the card over and customize each item. Then, using your smartphone or other Android, Fire OS, or iOS device, scan your images into the app, and wow! It comes with flashcards, erasable markers, and a code to unlock the free app. Pre-readers can also learn to spell and pronounce the names of the objects on each flashcard. It's for ages 3 to 8, costs under 40 bucks. You can find out more at drpanda.com. Zuru Fidgeters from Antsy Labs. The jury is still out as to whether fidget cubes and spinners help kids or adults focus, but one thing's for sure, they, they're definitely entertaining. Zuru's fidget cube has a different fidgeting activity on most of its six faces, so you can flick, glide, flip, roll, click, and more. The fidget spinner doesn't have nearly as many diversions, but its near-frictionless technology means you can get more than a minute of mesmerizing spinning action from a single flick. Cubes and spinners come in a variety of designs, including DC, which would be Wonder Woman and Superman and Batman, and Marvel, Spider-Man, Captain America, Hulk, and Iron Man. For ages 6 and up, costs 12 to 15 bucks at retailers everywhere or at ZuruFidget.com. Tangle from Zuru. The Tangle may be the original fidgeting toy. I had one more than 20 years ago and actually met the inventor. Now marketed by Zuru, it's making a well-deserved comeback. Tangle is an amazingly simple device made of a series of linked pieces of what look like elbow macaroni, but once you start playing with it, it's hard to put down. Really, really hard. You can get Tangle in a huge variety of colors, textures, and sizes. It's advertised as a puzzle, a brain tool, a movable sculpture, a desktop toy, and more. And it is. For ages three and up, TangleZuru.com. Build and play kits from Antsy Pants. Tired of building doll-sized structures that always manage to get underfoot? How about a lemonade stand or fort or castle that you can actually stand up in? These kits come in a variety of sizes, but all of them are easy to snap together, just as easy to disassemble and store, and they encourage creative, cooperative, open-ended play. 
They are also ideal for parents and children to build together. Each kit comes with plenty of connectors and poles to build a solid framework. Need more pieces? Hey, no problem. They're sold separately. And if you want to give your creation a more realistic look, you can purchase fabric covers like a lemonade stand, pirate ship, donut shop, fairy tale castle, circus tent, and a lot more. They're for ages 5 and up. Kits range from about 30 to 80 bucks, and they're available only at Target, but you can find out more at antsypants.com. You'll find a lot more reviews of toys and games and all sorts of other great stuff to do with your kids at our website, parentsatplay.com. Hey, but don't go quite yet because you know there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. It's Practical Polly's radio show. If you're just figuring out that healthier cooking oils are better than solid fats, you may be asking, now what am I going to do with all these tubs of lard? Ever had one of those moments when your favorite skinny jeans feel too tightly tailored? (laughs) Generously apply lard to your hips and thighs and those fancy pants will slide on like a dream. Or here's a family-friendly idea. How about making your yard into a lard fun park? Frost your driveway with a nice thick coating and give those kiddos a downhill thrill no matter what time of year. Having a bad hair day? Yep. A little lump of lard can tame your flyaways in a jiffy. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste or to your waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Now that's a tip worth keeping for life. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello there. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. This is the second part of today's show, and I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Do you prevent your child from making mistakes? Do you give your child power over you? Do you parent out of guilt If so, you're not alone. Every one of us wants to provide our kids with the best and safest future. But in today's increasingly complicated and scary world, many parents have taken things a step too far, mistakenly believing that giving their children the best chance at a successful life involves trying to shield them from pain and reality. From free-range parenting to helicopter parenting, many of today's popular parenting practices aren't allowing parents to teach children the skills they need to become mentally strong adults. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about parents. More specifically, we're going to be talking about what not to do, the unhealthy thoughts, behaviors, and feelings that hold adults back from raising mentally strong children. When children have the skills they need to deal with challenges in their everyday lives, they flourish socially, emotionally, behaviorally, and academically. And in this part of today's show, we're going to be going through some easy-to-follow steps that, with appropriate support and encouragement and guidance from adults, will help kids grow stronger and strive for a better future. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Chris, can you put the video game controller down for a second? 
I can talk and play. Oh, I'm totally annihilating this punk kid in Nebraska. I just feel like you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. Am too, am too. Well, you know, you still ride your skateboard to work. There's the comic book collection, the race car bed. Look, I'm young at heart, but I put money to my 401k every paycheck. I picked up a few savings tips at feedthepig.org. I have control of my financial life now, and that feels pretty grown up. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. Putting some money from every paycheck into a savings account or contributing to your 401k can make a big difference later. For free ideas and easy tips on ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. So, I bet I look like a grown up to you now. Well, except for the footy pajamas, I'd have to agree. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bront. My guest for this part of today's show is Amy Morin, who's the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, Raising Self-Assured Children and Training Their Brains for a Life of Happiness, Meaning, and Success. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Did you get a lot of pushback when you were coming up with the title of the book, which is, is also related to thirteen the, your previous book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do?, they have the don't in there because most books seem to be what you do do. Yeah, well, when I wrote the first book, I got that question a lot where people would say, why on earth would you write a book about what not to do? But then readers of my first book kept asking me, okay, now how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? So I was excited to be able to write this book as a follow-up to say, okay, now this is a, this is how you can teach kids how to do it. But the reason I put don't in my titles is because I've learned through my work as a therapist and through my own personal experiences that sometimes it only takes one or two bad habits to hold you back. And if you really want to be mentally strong, giving up those bad habits helps you to move forward. Well, it seems like if you had to put together a list of things that absolutely must be done and things that absolutely must not be done, that the must be done is going to be a huge amount bigger than the other one, that there really are probably only a few things that you can't do and everything else is really keep in mind safety and reasonableness and you're okay. Yeah, as a therapist, I would see so many people come into my office and some of them would get better faster than others and some of them had gone through incredibly difficult circumstances, but they would come through relatively unscathed. So over the years, I just started paying really close attention to say, well, what is it about these people that helps them to be so much more resilient? And I realized they just weren't doing these certain bad habits, and it really made their good habits much more effective. Well, let's start with the first one, which is, uh, i got to say, that's something that I could probably write an entire book on that one. Uh, don't condone, or the, what, what, I guess the chapters are always named they. It starts off with they. They don't condone a victim mentality, which is one of the things that parents, mentally strong parents don't do. They don't condone a victim mentality. Talk about that one, because I think it's so big. So many, so many kids and adults, for that matter, run around thinking that they're they're going to get hurt, they're going to get screwed by somebody, whatever it is, uh, and, and they don't end up taking any responsibility for anything. Exactly. And I see a lot of parents who, if their child, say, failed math class, that the child 
and the parent says, you know, this is terrible. The teacher did this horrible injustice and acts as though if the child's a victim or if the child doesn't make the baseball team, the parent's on the phone calling the coach saying, you gotta, you got to put my kid on the team. And I think it's really important for us to know that bad things happen in life and for us to teach kids that just because things didn't turn out the way you wanted doesn't make you a victim and that maybe your teacher, even if your teacher is unfair, that's part of life. You might have a boss someday who isn't fair or people aren't always going to make sure that you get your fair share of everything, but that doesn't mean you're a victim. You can still say, okay, I'm going to do the best I can with whatever circumstances I find myself in rather than sulking or pouting or just walking around complaining about how you were mistreated in life. And I think when parents can realize that, then they're less likely to feel sympathy for their kids or feel sorry for them, which then teaches kids they should host a pity party every time something bad happens. Well, a lot of it has to do with with the the helicopter parenting or snowplow parenting or whatever it is that, that people are calling it these days where we are not allowing kids to fail. So they, they are not learning to endure the consequences of their own poor choices or, or, or just life in general. And so they're, they're developing a thinner skin and a, almost an, a knee-jerk reaction to look around for somebody who must be responsible for their faults because if, you know, if it were really something that, uh, that they were controlling, well, mom and dad would be there to help stop it. I think that's it exactly. You know, it's important to advocate for your kid. But on the other hand, to figure out when do you take a step back? When do you say, okay, it's okay that maybe you didn't play in the soccer game tonight, but that doesn't mean you're a victim. Or it's okay that, that you're struggling a little bit and, and with your violin lessons or whatever it is, but to know that you don't always have to go in and fix everything, that kids need to experience some difficulties on their own and to figure out how do you handle that, to give them practice. We wouldn't expect kids to learn how to to play a, an instrument by reading a book, we know, okay, you have to sit down and practice playing the violin every day to get better. But when it comes to dealing with their emotions or overcoming pain or problem solving, we're really quick to swoop in and do those things for them. But kids need practice so that when they eventually do move out of the house, they're able to do those things on their own and they have confidence that they can handle it. Well, how do you deal with a kid who has already developed that for whatever reason, whether it's the parent's the legacy that they've passed that on to their kid or whether the child has just developed it on his own. I mean, how do you begin to break that habit? I think it's about taking just taking a step back and saying, okay, what skills don't you have? What skills do I need to teach you? And sometimes it's the basics of teaching a child, okay, when you are upset, how do you verbalize how you're feeling? I'm angry, I'm sad, or what can you do? And it's just teaching really basic things like when you're angry, here are five things you can do that won't get you in trouble. Instead of throwing things, maybe you could go draw a picture or maybe you could read a book or write in a journal and just get really proactive about teaching kids basic skills. I work as a, a foster parent and when I have foster kids who come into my home, sometimes they're 14 years old and they don't really have any skills. Nobody's taught them these things over the years. And it's really about just going back to the basics and teaching them things that probably they should have learned when they were four or five, but they can still learn it now. We're all capable of learning better emotional skills and better social skills no matter how old we are. You can always keep sharpening those skills. So I think it's never too late to teach kids how do you start doing these things now. Well, this seems related to number three in a way, that they, they don't, the good, again, mentally strong parents don't make their child the center of the universe. I mean, when you have your child the center of the universe, you're going to protect that investment. 
And out of all the chapters so far, this is the one that I've gotten the most pushback from, where people say, no, my child is absolutely the center of the universe, and I'm never going to change that. But I think it's important to uh, be really clear that your child should be a top priority in your life, and your life should change once you have kids. But that's different than making your kid the center of the universe. I see some parents who they only do things on the weekends that revolve around their children, or they only make decisions if their child wants to do it. And the parents have sort of lost their identity outside of being a parent. Everything has to revolve around the child. And we're seeing what happens when kids grow up thinking that the universe revolves around them. They become self-absorbed and they have trouble in making healthy relationships because they don't understand that they're not entitled and that not everybody out there is going to cater to them all the time. Yeah. I remember when my uh, oldest one, who has long since graduated college, but when she was applying for colleges, I said to her, look, this is how much I've got saved for you, and this is how much I can afford, and so we're going to have to figure out of different ways of financing what you want to finance, because she was only looking at the, the most expensive places around. I, somehow you can get a, 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 <laughs> a list of the most expensive colleges, and she looked there. And, and she said to me, she said, I'm not, I'm not going to let your financial limitations get in the way of my education. And I said, okay. That's a really harsh thing to say, but I, I can tell you that I'm not going to live in my car so that you can have the education that you want. So <laughs> we're going to have to figure out something in between there. Uh, but you know, this, this attitude of somebody owes me something just because I'm a nice kid is, yeah. is weird to me. Yeah, I think it is too. And, but you know, interesting you offer that example because we see so many parents who are taking loans out against their 401k or they stop investing in retirement so they can fund their kids' education. And then obviously parents in the end are in dire financial troubles when they're 65 years old and they have nothing saved for retirement. Suddenly it's an emergency, but even so their their child is still in college and gets an expensive degree. But where does that leave everybody? So I think it's really important for kids to know that, yes, obviously your parents make lots of sacrifices for you, but they don't need to sacrifice everything. And I think right now we're seeing such an emphasis on happiness, that you have to be happy all the time and you have to raise happy kids. And so many parents have taken that to, to an unhealthy level where they are overindulging their kids and they're buying more gifts than they can afford and they're doing everything because somehow they think that that makes them be good parents. If you shuttle your child to every sports camp or you get your kids involved in a million activities, then that somehow must mean that you're the best parent. I'm talking with Amy Morin, who's the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, Raising Self-Assured Children and Training Their Brains for a Life of Happiness, Meaning, and Success. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other 13 things we haven't talked about yet. Uh, including not shielding children from pain and uh, not letting them avoid responsibility and a lot of other things. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Hey, there he is. How's it going? I'm having a stroke. Are you going to shake my hand or what? I'm having a stroke. Wow, you're not even moving your arm. I'm having a stroke. Are you okay? I'm having a stroke. Your face looks weird, too. I'm having a stroke. Are you having a seizure or something? I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. I'm having a stroke. You just need to know the sudden signs. Look for FAST, F-A-S-T. 
F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. Or S, speech difficulty. Then T, time. Time to call 911 immediately. Because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. Know the sudden signs. Face, arm, speech, time. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Amy Morin, who's the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And wanted to ask you to clarify something or, or maybe expand on something. Just before the break, you were talking about how important it is for parents not to let their kids become the center of the universe. And you were saying that, that uh, r- take, you know, running around and doing all these things and taking them different places uh, m- makes them feel like they're being good parents. And I'm wondering where they... Is it that or is it guilt? Or are the two related somehow that they feel yeah, guilty I, that that both that, that they and the spouse work full time and that they can't be there for all of the soccer games or they can't go to the parent teacher conferences or whatever it is. And so they feel that the only way to to assuage their own guilt is to do crazy amounts of things for their kids. I definitely think that's part of it, too. I think um, a combination of factors go into it where, uh, you know, years ago, we didn't have helicopter parents. So if one child forgot his homework, it wasn't a big deal. But now that if one kid in the class forgets his homework, then parents bring in their their child's forgotten work to school. So kids aren't really making mistakes. Kids aren't really struggling. Instead, parents are sort of become more like a concierge for their kids rather than being a parent and we're seeing them waiting on their kids and doing all these wonderful things for them and I think that that creates guilt for parents who think gosh I can't do that or I don't have enough money I don't have enough time but parents are trying to do it anyway they're overextending themselves and ultimately I don't think it's healthy for for the parent or the child the whole family can suffer when parents are really doing too much for kids all right let's skip ahead, and I'm not sure that these are necessarily in any specific order, but <clears throat> number 11 happens to be they don't confuse discipline with punishment. And that's something I think that, that comes up every once in a while, and you'll read an article about it, and they start talking about the Latin root for the word discipline really has to do with disciple and teaching. But I, I think going down that particular road isn't terribly helpful. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the difference between discipline and punishment and why we need to toe the line. You know, discipline is really about teaching your child. How do you teach them to do better next time? So if they mess up today, how can you give them the skills that they need to do better tomorrow? And punishment is really about saying, I'm going to inflict some sort of suffering on you and make you be sorry for your mistake. And it's not to say you shouldn't give kids consequences. You absolutely should. And we need to use consequences, though, that are teaching tools and to use consequences that will teach them self-discipline so that when you're not looking, they still want to do the right thing and they know how to make good choices rather than um, teaching them that I just, I need to do a good job when mom's watching because I don't want to get in trouble. It's very different than teaching a child, okay, I can do this because I'm a good kid and I know how to make good choices. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that, but you want to raise a child who knows how to make good choices, how to be self-disciplined when you're not hovering over him telling him what to do. 
Well, that seems to me to be the goal of, of parenting itself is to be able to get kids to make the right choices or at least good choices and to be able to take, take responsibility for them when we're not there. Yes, and I think some parents lose sight of that and they forget that when your kid is 20 years old, you probably won't be there every waking moment to, to make sure to keep nagging them to do their homework or to be looking over their shoulder and scolding them and so that when they're 8, 9, 10 years old, you're giving them those skills so that they can say, okay, I can, I can do this, and that they have the confidence to know I can make good choices. So let's talk about one of the ones that I think is a little bit different than, than the ones we've talked about so far. They, they don't give the kids, their, they don't give their child power over them. What do you mean by that, and how does that happen? Because I think most parents would say, well, of course my children don't have power over me. I'm the adult. I pay the bills, and, and they do what they're supposed to do. Doesn't well, always work out that really, way. Right. This is really about, I think, losing sight of what it means to empower your kids versus letting them have too much power, and there's a line. And over the past couple of decades, we've seen this real shift in family hierarchy. Back in the 60s, parents were in charge, and it was my way or the highway. And then we kind of figured out, okay, that's not always the best. Kids need to, it's okay for them to have emotions or to, to speak up. But the pendulum kind of swung too far in the opposite direction where we started treating it more like it was a democracy or that kids are miniature adults. And I see a lot of people that will come into my therapy office and the parents are asking kids questions like, we're thinking of taking this new job on the other side of the country. What do you think about us moving? But rather than just sort of feeling out how the child feels about it, they're letting the child vote. Or I've had moms who have come in after a divorce and they said, you know, my 12-year-old won't let me date. And they're letting kids dictate way too much and they're giving them way too much power and it's not healthy for kids. That parents need to be in charge. They need to set a clear hierarchy that says we're the authority figures. Yes, we value your opinion. However, ultimately, it's up to us to decide because we're adults and we have more wisdom, more experience, and we know what's best for everybody. It seems like a really difficult flow to stop. Because, you know, a lot of us will, will say, wow, you know, my, my child is, has a very artistic eye, and so I value her opinion about where I should hang pictures in the house or whether this shirt goes with that pair of pants or something like that. But that can morph into something much bigger if you, if you let it. So where do you draw the yeah. line on these things? I think it's about figuring out, okay, am I giving my child, because you should give kids choices. You can ask your child, do you want water to drink or do you want ice water? That's empowering your kid to make a choice. <laughs> but when you start asking these major questions like, you know, what should the whole family eat for dinner? Or where should we go on a family vacation? And you start doing what your child says regardless of whether you actually want to do it or not. Um, I think that's where to, to draw the line. And to know that over little things, it doesn't really matter if you let your child weigh in on, on small choices that can be really helpful to your child's independence and it can give them confidence. But when you start giving them the opportunity to weigh in on big family decisions or things that are really going to affect your life, whether your 12-year-old tells you what kind of car to buy and you actually do it, or or when you let your 14-year-old your say, you know, I'm not going to go on family vacation this year unless we go to Disney World, then you're giving kids more power. It's developmentally not okay. Um, and it harms them in the end. So I think it's just really important for parents to take a step back sometimes and say, am I empowering my child or am I giving them too much power? So how do you stop that? Say that you've got a child who says, no, I refuse to do that. 
and you've got years of history. I'm asking on behalf of my sister, in a way, who's got a, a very, very difficult child who who does these kinds of things with her, who just mouths off in an incredible way, and she has unfortunately, she turns these things into jokes, and she laughs them off, and doesn't really like it, but doesn't ever put her foot down, and it's just gotten worse and worse over the years. So what what can somebody do if you've got a 12-year-old who has got a, is is willful and disrespectful and knows that he enjoys throwing his power around because it, it interrupts things? I mean, you know, the, the whole world has to come to an end if he refuses to go someplace. Right. It's tough if your child isn't used to it. I mean, usually it gets a little bit worse before it gets better when you start to try to take back some of that authority. Your child will rebel and you think, oh, this isn't working. I can't do it. Most parents do anyway, but if you can stick with it. And so a few quick things is make your child earn privileges. Don't just let them watch TV for endless hours or play video games or go places with friends unless they earn it. Make it clear. You can earn it. This is how you earn it. And I'll let you do it. If you do your chores, you're respectful, you behave and set that up and then also don't let your child tell you what to do make your child ask permission so before your child says instead of saying i'm going to the park with my friends make your child ask and you can say no sometimes and you don't even really need a reason other than no we're not going to do that today or no you can't um and then stick with it and then you enforce consequences and you can make it clear uh you can clean your room or not but if you choose not to clean your room then you won't be able to watch tv until it's done and then leave it up to your child so that you can say you can make these choices so that you can earn your privileges or not, um, and then try to stick with it. You know, we only have got just under a minute left, but give me your favorite one of these that we haven't talked about yet. Number 13, that mentally strong parents don't lose sight of their values. I think in today's world it's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and the chaos, and you forget to look at the bigger picture about what you'd really prefer, whether you'd want the teacher to say you have the kindest kid in the class or the smartest kid in the class. And coming to terms with what your values are and then making sure that you're living according to those is really important if you want to raise a child who lives a life of meaning. Amy Morin, the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, Raising Self-Assured Children and Training Their Brains for a Life of Happiness, Meaning, and Success. Her other book is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you missed any part of this show or you want to catch up on our many, many archives, I mean, they're in the hundreds, do check us out at MrDad.com. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.